Oh, thank you, praise team. And Laura, I appreciate your, I just appreciate what you do. It blesses my heart. We're people of faith, not of fear. But we are people that still want to recognize that God has given wisdom to people to know how to handle the events that we're going through. So this morning, you're going to get to hear the last of the Ten Commandments. We've reached the tenth one, and I wanted to cover those before we go on to something else. We're going to complete this, and I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but the commandments that we've been studying, building on uh, God's plan for our life, the first commandment that we looked at said, Thou shalt have no other gods. And the last commandment that we're going to look at tells us how we break all the other commands. You may have not known that, but you'll see that as we go through this. God's Word tells us covetousness is a form of idolatry. God told us in that first commandment, we're to have no other gods before Him. The thing about idolatry in covetousness is that it happens and no one sees it. No one but you and God are the only people who know this is going on in your life. That's what this commandment is really all about, and it does make a difference. Uh, Look at what goes on in the name of pleasure, in the name of sin, in the name of violence, in the name of coveting power and success and wealth and all those things that you and I can imagine. And we find ourselves, even believers, being a part of a mixed foggy sludge of what is right and what is wrong. And as followers of Christ, we're told to be salt and light. That's what God called us to be. He told us to be that. We're His representatives here on earth. And at a difficult time like this, we need to be doing our part, especially in the world where we live. It's what God's talking about. What kind of covetousness in your heart and in my heart do we overlook and we fail to call it sin? And so we're going to look at some of those this morning. Pastors can have covetousness. We would like to be able to be the best around when it comes to preaching or the best around when it comes to pastoring or the bigger church that we might have. We just sort of slide that under the road or under the door, believing that God, we're doing it for God's sake. But a lot of times our motives are tricky. They're a lot different than that. Romans 13, 11, and 12 says, Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone and the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. If there ever was a time when we need to be light in a dark world, I believe it's today. And so God is saying that some things have to happen in your life, Kent, before you can be that light. I can tell you, Satan knows the Ten Commandments. 
and behooves us to know them. He gave them to His people so that we would be able to make a difference. We would be His image in the world where we live and that we could communicate with others and communicate with God our Savior. Now these commandments have been broken all through history. They've littered all of history. And every time with consequences. You'd think after a while we would learn, wouldn't you? But it seems that we haven't. And still today, these commandments remain a guide for living in the light. Even for us as modern Americans. Exodus 20, verse 17. I hope you have your copy of God's Word. I'm going to ask you to stand as I read aloud this passage from God's Word. Exodus 20, verse 17, the very last command. Listen to what God says. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Pretty plain, isn't it? Anything that is your neighbor's. That's what he's telling us. Let me give you a definition for covetousness. Write this on your outline while you're standing there if you can. It's uncontrolled desire to acquire. The uncontrolled desire to acquire. Now, acquiring is not wrong. God is putting that in us in a lot of reasons. We're to acquire wisdom, the Bible tells us. We're to acquire insight. All this from Proverbs tells us that we're to do that. But anytime this desire to acquire gets out of control, it's wrong. And there's some things God says you're not to desire that. These are the things that we're looking at now. We're not to desire those. Our desires must be controlled. Would you pray with me? In Daniel 9, verse 19, after the personal confession of the sins of the Hebrews and the Hebrew nation, Daniel asked God to forgive him and his people for their sinful ways. And Father, I ask that today for we as your people I pray that you would raise up a people, many believers across this land, who will stand in the gap, stand on behalf of our sinful nation. And I pray, Father, that we, the members of Crossroads, that we will habitually set our minds on things above, where the Son is seated at the right hand of the Father. And Father, just honestly, as I come to you, I really don't know what it's going to take to bring me and this nation to real repentance. I'm not sure. But Father, you know. And you have given us, and I know this, and your people know this, that Second Chronicles tells us if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Turn from their wicked ways. God says then I will hear. I will hear them and I 
will heal their land. He will heal our land. Father, are you not trying to tell us something today? May our hearts be pliable and open to your word. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I want us to look this morning at the effects of covetousness, what they do to us, really. The first one is fatigue. Everybody can identify with that because we've got a lot of covetousness in us. We push to get more, and we push more and more. We work second jobs. We have everybody in the family working. Everybody goes at a furious pace. It's interesting, the last few weeks, I have been monitoring my blood pressure. It's okay. I just want the doctor to know it's okay. But the thing about it is, I found out that when I get rushed, it just sort of zooms up where it shouldn't be. All of us are like that. We find ourselves in this rat race, trying to get out of it. Uh, it wears us out, God tells us, all the time. We're tired. In fact, Proverbs 23 verse 4 says, Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist, my translation says. Cease doing that. Cease doing that. Don't wear yourselves out. Use restraint, God's Word is telling us. It's really crazy when you think about it to try to get more. And that's what we do. There's a second thing that God's Word tells us that is an effect of wanting more, and it is debt. You familiar with that? Boy, there's a bunch of people worried right now, isn't there? We're not sure what's going to happen down the road. We can identify with this. Listen to Ecclesiastes 5 verse 11. When goods increase... They increase who eat them. And that and what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? That passage says, when I want to acquire more, what happens is the Bible refers that to eating it, just eating these things. I want these things so mad, so bad, like taking food inside your body. And he says, after a while you get so much, and the only advantage of that is all you can do is look at it. You can't use all of that. You can just look at it. We think the problem is I don't have enough money. That's not the problem. The problem is I want too much. I don't have enough money for all I want. They're not needs. We can't tell the difference between needs and greeds anymore, can we? Listen, in 2018, the latest statistics I can get a hold of, the average American family carries a debt load of $137,063. Let me tell you the term for that. That's deficit spending. Now, that's, that is the mean across this nation. Our government is the only person that can get by with deficit spending. You and I can't do that. And yet we carry these kind of debt loads because we want more. I ran into, a, or I heard about a pastor who ran into a man that he had married a decade earlier. And when he was talking to him, he said, how's things going with you and your wife? 
And this man just looked at him and he said, when you say something about my wife, I just think of electricity. And the pastor was delighted. He said, I'm thankful that there's still that much passion and desire in your marriage after these 10 years. And he said, you don't understand, pastor. What I'm trying to say is that everything she touches, that she charges everything she touches. Well, men do that as well. They don't do with little stuff. They do the big stuff. They really do. Because we want more, we get deeper in debt. It always costs more to have more. Have you figured that out yet? Might be a good time to learn that. In the 50s, I can remember it. Most of you can't. But in the 50s, we had thrift days when you just didn't spend money. We just didn't spend money at all. Today, we have what we call new wealth, which means we try to spend it any and every way we can. Let me give you another effect of wanting more, of trying to acquire more worry, stress. You're familiar with that. Ecclesiastes 5.22 says, Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Those who labor were those who had to work hard for what they had. And when you work hard for what you have during the day, you probably sleep a little better at night. When you don't have to work, you can bring it home with you and you can worry over it and fret over it and toss and turn all night long about those things. And that's usually what we do with more and more that we try to earn. To have more, you'll worry more. That's what we're told and we know that to be true. We worry more because we try to figure out how to protect it and save it, invest it, shelter it from taxes, keep from losing it. Some of us haven't been able to do that the last few weeks, have we? And that's what we're talking about. But when you labor to exhaustion, you sleep better. That's what we're saying. Let me give you another effect of wanting more, trying to acquire more. Conflict. That's what happens when you have fatigue and debt and worry, then conflict comes on top of this. James 4 verse 1 says, Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war against you? Conflict comes. It comes in my life and it comes in your life when I'm always wanting more. Do you know that finances... It sort of bounces between one and two, but presently it's at number one. Finances is the biggest thing that causes divorce in a marriage. You might think there's a lot of other things, but it's financing that causes it. And we don't think about that. The conflict, coveting us, who, what belongs to who, and all of this. Don't covet people's jobs or their wheels or their house or their spouse. God says, you shall not, because it causes conflict. Let me give you another effect of that. It's dissatisfaction. Ecclesiastes 5 verse 10 says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. I thought money would satisfy. Nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. If I had more money, I'd be all right. I wouldn't worry about all this. That's not what God says. It never satisfies. You'll never get enough if, that's, if money is what you want to satisfy you. 
You'll never get enough of that at all. And those who love wealth, more income, all that's vanity. It doesn't bring what we thought it would bring or what we wanted it to bring. It's that way all the time, isn't it? That's what dissatisfaction brings to us. That's the number five, dissatisfaction. Let me tell you something. Whatever you buy new today will not last very long. It'll only bring happiness for a short period of time. In fact, the smell of a new automobile might last five payments and it might not. And then it's just gone. And what I thought would really be wonderful is not anymore. That new furniture gets scratched and dirty real quick. And all that is gone. The thrill only lasts for a very short time. And we pay a lot for that short moment of thrill. Why does the excitement wear off about this? Why doesn't things keep me permanently happy? Well, let me tell you something. Things don't change, but human beings do. We change all the time. There's all this influence coming into us from all these directions about what we need. We get bored with what we have because it's not like the rest of the stuff. There's two little words that just drive our market in this nation, and it is fashion and style. Last year's fashion was great last year, but it's no good this year. It's old looking all the time. And so we're always either redecorating or remodeling or at least rearranging because we don't stay satisfied with the way things are. One translation of Ecclesiastes 5 verse 20 says, the foolishness of thinking that wealth brings happiness. Are you still thrilled with what you got Christmas? I'll give you a moment to try to remember what you got. Doesn't happen, does it? It doesn't. Coveting is the number one reason for dissatisfaction in our world. Well, what's the antidote? There is an antidote and it's contentment. Contentment. Philippians 4.12 says, I know how to get along with humble means. And I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret. I have learned, I have learned, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry. Both of having abundance and suffering need. Contentment has to be learned. Did you hear that? We're not born contented. You know that. I know that. We are always wanting more. We have to learn to do that. I think of the Apostle Paul who wrote this in Romans. Let me tell you about Paul. Paul was a wealthy man before he became a Christian. He was one of the elite of 70 elite in the nation of Israel. He was a top of the rung. And when God saved him, it just went the other direction. When he says, I know to have pl- how to live when there's plenty and I know how to live when there's not, he knows what he's talking about, friend. He knows what he's talking about. Let's look at it. The secret to contentment. How do you have that? How do you learn it? First of all, resist. Resist comparing yourself to others. That's what gets us in trouble. 2 Corinthians 10 verse 12 of that passage says this. We do not, or not that we dare rather, to classify our 
compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves. But when they measure themselves by others or by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. When you start comparing yourself to someone else who has the bigger house, the newer car, the bigger salary, you're not going to find contentment in that at all. And God tells us that's useless. Don't compare yourselves to other people. It's not wise. If you're comparing yourselves to others and comparing their house to your house and your car to their car and whatever they might have, their jobs and their looks and their clothes and their spouses, that's just not smart at all. God says when you do that, you just create more and more dissatisfaction. And that's what happens when we do that. We do that so much. How do you react when you see someone or know someone has a bigger house than you? A newer car, a better car than you have. Do you think in yourself, I wish I had that? Or can, you be glad, or can you be glad they have it? Can you learn to enjoy stuff without having to own it? Without having to acquire it? Enjoy the fact that somebody else has it. You may know somebody in a big house who will tell you that their furniture goes all the way back to Louis XV. While things in your, comp- in your house and in your, as far as your furniture is concerned will go back to wherever you bought it by the 15th of the month if you don't pay for it. It's the way we do. We compare ourselves all the time, don't we? Why do we compare? Because in the Western society, that's how we keep score. By what I've got, compared to what you've got or what someone else may have. We're insecure. We're always looking over our shoulder, wondering how we're doing. We believe that worth and self-worth are the same thing, but they're not. They're not the same thing at all. 1 Timothy 6 verse 9 says, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare into many senseless and harmful desires and has plunged people into ruin and destruction. It's exactly what happens when we want to acquire more and more and more. Things can control us. Have you noticed that? We become possessed by our possessions. They just take over. They're in charge after a while. We no longer want to keep up with the Joneses. We want to surpass them. No fun just trying to keep up with them. We sacrifice our values. We sacrifice our morals. We sacrifice religion, relationships. We even sacrifice marriages for more and more. How do we learn this? How not to have all that going on? Let me give you a second thing. Rejoice in what you do have. Rejoice in what you do have. Appreciate what you have. Be grateful that God has given it to you. Ecclesiastes 5 verse 19. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. God says we're to be grateful. It's a gift what he gives us. He gives that to us. And he says, 
It comes from God. I wouldn't have anything if it wasn't for God. You wouldn't have anything if it wasn't for God. We may think we earn it one way or the other, but that's not right. Someone has said that we live in a generation that we could now think of as when and then. We're those kind of thinkers. When and then. When I get this, then everything's going to be okay. When I get that, everything's going to be okay. When I get married, everything's going to be okay. When I get that new car, it's going to be okay. When I get it paid for, it's going to be okay. When and then. And every time you have a when and then, you're just adding to all that's going on. Now you'll want new and improve because the when and then will soon be gone and you'll move on to the next one, the next year or whenever. It's a rat race when you live like that. What are you waiting on to make you happy this morning? If this happens, then I'll be okay. When I get married, I want to tell you, you're as happy as you want to be. Doesn't matter what your position is today. You're as happy as you want to be. It's your choice. Happiness is not getting whatever you want. Real happiness is enjoying what God has given you and His love for us. God delights in your enjoyment of what, you, what He's given to you. Just like parents, you delight in what you've given to your children. That's how God is. A mark of maturity is being able to say enough is enough. I don't need any more now. When's the last time you said that? Ecclesiastes 6 verse 9. Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and striving after wind. What does that passage mean? When it says better is the sight of the eyes, it's better to enjoy what's available for you to see. Just enjoy it. And then he says, better than the wandering of the appetite. The appetite is craving and desiring those things you can't have without a lot of pain. He says, just what you can look at, enjoy that. You don't have to own it or possess it. To do otherwise is like striving after wind. It's better to be satisfied with what you have than to always be wanting something more. How do you learn this? The third one is release what you have to others. That's the third thing God wants us to learn out of, out of this. That's how he brings contentment. God doesn't just want to bless you so that you're the one that's blessed with that and no one else. He wants others to be benefited by what he gives you and what he's blessed you with. That's what he tells us. God's waiting to see how much you're going to give away. How's it going? He's waiting to see how much you're going to give away. That's what he wants us to know. Listen to this passage in 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19. The Bible says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good and to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. 
Do you see what he says there in that? I want to bring that to your attention again. He talks about those who are rich. They'll be rich in good works. But he's talking to the rich. As far as the rich in this present age. I want to tell you something, friend, that you probably don't know and you don't want to hear, but I want you to know you are rich in compared to this world. If you're a, nation, if you're a member of this nation, you're in the top 2% of salaries and wealth in the world. In the world. You keep comparing yourself to a guy who has a $500,000 a year job, you won't ever see that. But I want to tell you something, friend. You're wealthy. And God says, I want to see what you're doing with your wealth. You've got more wealth than anybody in the world. I want to know what you're doing with that. Goodness. He's speaking to us. Every one of us in this room today. This verse is speaking to us. It's possible to be wealthy and not to be materialistic. And I want you to know it's possible to be poor and greedy because I've seen a bunch of them. I've known them has nothing to do with materialism. It has everything to do with your attitude. How can we be wealthy and not materialistic? Let me give you three bullet or four bullet points here real quick. Don't become proud of your wealth. Don't think you're better than anyone else. The second bullet, don't put your trust in money. Security is in Jesus Christ. If you've got your trust in money, you're checking your stocks and bonds all the time. The third one, use your money to do good. Don't waste it or squander it on things that are not going to last. Use it to do good. And then the last one there, give generously. The Bible says that the more we receive, the more we are to give. Giving is the cure for materialism. You start giving it away, you won't get really connected to it. It's the way we break up material, this materialism. If we do those four things, notice the benefits of storing up in heaven. What God tells us, Acts 20 verse 35, in all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. What are you sending ahead? What are you storing up? I want to tell you, it won't be that big house, that new car, that whatever it may be, it won't be that. It's got to be what God gives us and to use for Him. Let me give you the fourth one there. How we learn this, refocus on what is going to last. Give your attention to what's permanent. Do you know the Bible says that anything you can put your eye on will decay or rust or wear out? Anywhere you can put your eye. You're looking at me right now, I'm going to wear out. Anything you do. All this is temporary. We look at it like it's permanent. Nothing's going to last. Nothing. Except what is eternal. That relationship with the Lord. That relationship with believers. The word, God's Word. Those are the only things that are going to last in all of eternity. The tragedy of materialism is that it just fogs our eyes. It clouds our vision of what God really wants us to think about in life. Let me give you some life application. 
In Luke 12, you remember Christ tells the story about a man who was a successful businessman. And this successful businessman had a crop one year that outweighed, outgrew any crop he had ever had. And the Bible says that when he put that in his thinking, he said to himself, he said, I am going to build bigger barns. I'm going to tear down my barns. They're not big enough. And I'm going to build bigger barns to hold everyone, everything I have. He didn't think one bit about giving some to people who didn't have. He just wanted more of what he did had, have. And you remember Jesus Christ calls him a fool. He does. He says, this night your soul will be required of you. Because he was not rich toward God. You're not going to take it with you. I've had too many funerals. I know you can't. You can't do that at all. Because we have a carnal nature, all of us, we have this propensity to acquire things, to break the Ten Commandments, I could say. We do that. That's the reason we want more and more and more. Luke 12, verse 15, And he said to them, Take care. This was after he spoke about this wealthy man that wanted to tear down his barns and build bigger. He said to those listening around him, Take care and be on guard against all covetousness For one's life does not consist of the abundance of his possessions. That's not what life consists of. Culture says, I have a little, I'm worth a little. Culture says, I have a lot, I'm worth a lot. Neither one of those are right. None of those at all. Let me tell you what determines your worth. Cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what determines your worth and my worth. As we end this series on the Ten Commandments, we probably ought to check ourselves. We ought to ask some tough questions of ourselves. Where am I going when I die? And how am I living as a child of God compared to what God wants me to live in His commands? Am I just want to get more and get more and get more? I'll tell you where real, real, real life comes from. Knowing what God wants you to do and doing it. That's what it is. You may have much to live on, but not very much to live for. And you need to have a lot to live on, friend. But you need to have something to live for. God tells us that. 1 John 5, 11 and 12 says, Real life is not to be found only in God's Son. It's or to be found only in God's Son. Real life is to be found only in God's Son. Anyone who has Christ has this life. But if he doesn't have Christ, then he does not possess this life at all. I don't know about you, but the last ten weeks, I just saw again how poorly I do with the Ten Commandments. And I want to tell you something else I noticed. I can't keep the Ten Commandments. I try, but I can't keep them. 
And I want you to know, my friend, God is the only one that can give us the power that we need when it comes to the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are there to show us we can't do it by ourselves. You can't, and I can't. But boy, Galatians, when you get in Galatians, Paul writes and says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse, by becoming a curse for us. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith, not by works. That doesn't mean we're not to keep the Ten Commandments anymore. That's not what that's saying. But that's saying, I give you these Ten Commandments just like I gave them to those in the wilderness for them to realize that they needed a Savior. They couldn't do it on their own. We need a Savior. We need a Savior. And I don't know. I don't know about you. I don't know about your relationship with the Lord. I haven't been around you enough to know all those things. But I just want to tell you, I don't want to see you miss heaven. I don't want to see you miss heaven. And I don't know where you are with God, but I want to tell you something, friend. If you think you're going to work your way there, you can't. I don't know any other way to tell you. You can't. I'm just going to ask you to bow your head. And just for a moment, I want you to think about where you are in your relationship with the Lord. I want you to be able to say, Yes, Lord. Or no, Lord, I'm not doing that. Would you think about that right now? As you think and you examine your life, nobody knows what's going on but you. studied and that we've looked at these weeks help us to realize Father that these are what bring joy to our life and we understand why we don't have it because we've not been keeping these but Father you sent your son that his my curse might be put on him he carries that curse so that I might have life in Him when I receive Him as the Lord of my life. So Father, if there's some here today that are not followers of Yours, that have never received You by faith, I pray, Father, Your Spirit to speak to their hearts and I pray, Father, they they would respond with yes, Lord. pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now we're going to do something a little different. I want to share something with you and I won't say any more about it. But today when you walk out, 
Uh, there will be baskets. There are baskets now as you go out of the building in a few minutes. And uh, that's where you put your offering. And, and we'll talk a little more about your offering in just a few moments. But let me just say this. When we come to this thing of offering every Sunday morning, I want you to understand that this church is giving you and giving me an opportunity for a great investment. A great investment in His Word and a great investment in people. Now His Word and people are the only two things that will last eternally. Nothing else will. Just like you, I just lost a whole lot of my living the last three weeks. But it just reminded me again, I cannot trust in money. My Savior is the Lord Jesus Christ. And He has to be yours. But friend, we have an opportunity to invest in something that will not be bothered by the ups and downs of what's going on financially. I like what Jim Elliott said before he lost his life, if you remember, to the Alka Indians. But he made this statement, been quoted a lot of times. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep or that which he cannot lose. That's where we are.